Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Isaiah and Jesus, Critical Descent as a Form of Faith. It's based on the lectionary readings for Sunday, February the 9th, 2014. A few months ago at a barbecue, a friend described to me his ambivalent history of church attendance. Daniel grew up on a farm in the Midwest in a Christian family. He attended church on Sundays and graduated from a Christian college. He described those years with fondness and respect. His ambivalence began when he took a course on the critique of religion at the Christian college. In the first part of the course, the class read external critiques of religion by outsiders like Darwin, Marx, and Freud. Their contemporary kin would include atheists like Dawkins and Dennett, Harris and Hitchens. Insiders should welcome the outsider's critique. When you're committed to a cause, whether religion, politics, economics, or almost anything, it's always easy to ignore your weaknesses. To spurn criticism is a recipe for disaster. In the second part of the course, Daniel's class read the internal critiques of religion by its insiders. This tradition begins in the Bible itself, with texts like Isaiah 58 in Matthew chapter 5 from this week's lectionary. Such critical dissent as a form of faith, epitomized in Jesus' engagement with Judaism, enjoys a long history in the church. The internal critiques by insiders added a twist to Daniel's ambivalent relationship with the church. He was a gifted intellectual who did a Ph.D. at Harvard, so he took the external critiques of religion seriously. But maybe, just maybe, he began to think, there's a vibrant sort of faith and faithfulness that encourages dissent from the inside out. The gift of the insider is the combination of commitment with criticism. The Protestant Reformation that tore through Europe and transformed Western society began as an insider critique of our medieval inheritance. Thus did the monk-turned-professor Martin Luther offer what the Oxford historian Dermot McCulloch calls a spectacularly disloyal form of loyalty to the church when he demanded radical reform. Yes, the Reformation was a period of extreme mental and physical violence, says McCulloch, but in the end, toleration and peaceful coexistence resulted. The putative divine right of hereditary and state powers succumbed to the rule of law and the voices of citizens. Individual conscience usurped institutional coercion. The Reformation spawned a historical way of thinking from which we benefit even today. 
All this because of what McCulloch calls a remarkable exercise in honest thinking. And for all its faults and unintended consequences, consider that Eastern Orthodoxy and Islam have not experienced a similar reformation that was kick-started by Luther's insider criticism. In her book, Called to Question, the Benedictine Joan Chittister explores the relationship between personal conscience, intellectual integrity, and church fidelity. Like every institution, the church asks us, at some level, to sublimate our personal identities to the group identity. But when we do that, we risk forfeiting our conscience and distorting our faith. We become what Chittister calls institutional robots. Some people try to change the institution. But critical questions are precisely what the church often suppresses or deflects with superficial answers. And it's easy to acquiesce to the institutional defaults, perhaps out of fatigue, fear of being wrong, or the possibility of punishment. Others just leave out of frustration. Chittister combines critical inquiry with institutional fidelity. She calls herself a loyal member of a dysfunctional family. Then there's Barbara Brown Taylor in her book, Leaving Church, A Memoir of Faith. She explores the relationship between her personal identity and the professional institution that she loves and serves as an Episcopal priest. With admirable candor, she describes complex issues that are both personal and clerical. Genuine faith, she says, includes both a center and an edge. Each is necessary for the soul's health. To nourish the center, feed the fringes. In the end, Taylor seems to have left the church precisely to save her faith. Isaiah 58 is a classic insider critique. The people of God, writes Isaiah, seem eager to know God's ways. As evidence of their faith, they appeal to their fasts. But Isaiah dissents. A privatized religious fast that ignores public ethics like economic exploitation is bad faith. A true fast, says Isaiah in his famous poetry, looses the chains of injustice, sets the oppressed free, feeds the hungry, clothes the naked, and shelters the wanderer. Many of his critics complained that Jesus ignored Jewish laws and even wanted to destroy the temple. In some ways, that's true. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus rebuts these criticisms. He says that he didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill the law. He then gives five examples, each of which is introduced with the formula, you have heard it said, and then contrasted with, but I say to you. He picks up where Isaiah left off and goes even further. 
External compliance with the religious code isn't enough, said Jesus. There's a deeper level of interior transformation. Anger is more subtle than murder, lust more nuanced than adultery. In his memoir, My Bright Abyss, Meditation of a Modern Believer, the poet Christian Wyman of Yale wonders what assenting to his long latent faith might mean, especially after being diagnosed with a rare form of cancer on his 39th birthday. What I crave now is some speech that is true to the transcendent nature of grace, yet equal to the hard reality in which daily faith operates. He seeks that elusive balance between active devotion and honest modern consciousness. He keeps working to see the sanity and vitality of this strange ancient thing called Christian faith. Dissent is not disloyalty. Vibrant faith demands critical vigilance, especially from its own insiders. A friend who's a professor of history and an Episcopal priest says that church is exactly like family. You understand what you can get and what you can't, and that blood is indeed thicker than water. Family places can be Families can be places of unconditional love, but none of them are perfect or beyond criticism. In either case, we remain faithful to our family. And for further reflection, consider the examples of other dissident disciples, like Kierkegaard, Dorothy Day, the Berrigans, Martin Luther King Jr., and Wendell Berry. <clears throat> labels can be libels, especially when we define who's an insider or outsider. See Frank Anthony Spina in his book, The Faith of the Outsider. He explores seven stories where the outsider is mainlined and the insider is marginalized. And finally, see Robert Inchowski. The title of his book is called Subversive Orthodoxy, Outlaws, Revolutionaries, and Other Christians in Disguise. He explores the cultural critiques of 20 thinkers who, despite their many differences, all took great exception to the received wisdom of the day. For books this week, I review a small volume of poetry. It's by Edwina Gately. The title, There Was No Path, So I Trod One. Gately Publications, 2013. 121 pages. This collection of 80 poems, which was first published in 1996 and then again in 2000, includes one of my favorite poems of all time. It's called, Let Your God Love You. Listen to Gately's poem. Be silent. Be still. Alone. 
empty before your God. Say nothing. Ask nothing. Be silent. Be still. Let your God look upon you. That is all. God knows. God understands. God loves you with an enormous love and only wants to look upon you with that love. Quiet. Still. Be. Many of us work very earnestly indeed to know, love, and serve God. In the poem Small Deeps, Gately counts the ways, our holy places, books, rules, regulations, rites, rituals. But like many of our wisest mystics, Gately points us to the reality that God is always and has always been near us and in us. Our invitation is not to work harder, but to listen more carefully, to cultivate awareness and recognition. Tillich called it accepting that you're accepted. Nowen described it as the life of the beloved. Gately's mystic bent is tempered by the harsh realities of her ministry among the homeless, prostitutes, and pimps of Chicago, which work has won numerous awards. And so there are poems here to honor the memory of these loved but lost people. Today, Gately continues to write. She's published a dozen books. Lead retreats for abused and marginalized women and serve as a mother spirit for Exodus, a program in Chicago for women in the second phase of recovery from prostitution. She also speaks and leads retreats internationally. If you're ready for a bomb in your briefcase, I highly recommend this book of verse. All of her books are available at her website, edwinagately.com, and also at Amazon. Once again, Edwina Gately, There Was No Path, So I Trod One, a collection of 80 poems. For movies this week, I review a film that should appeal to all baby boomer music lovers. It's called Muscle Shoals from 2013. This documentary film tells the wildly improbable story of the music producer Rick Hall, born in 1932, and his legendary studio called Fame in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Born into grinding poverty to a family of sharecroppers, he slept on a dirt floor and had no plumbing. In 1960, he founded Fame, which for 50 years recorded dozens of famous musicians in rock, pop, soul, and country music. Here was a white producer with a white studio band in racist rural Alabama who produced some of the most powerful black music ever, beginning with Percy Sledge, Wilson Pickett, Aretha Franklin, and Etta James, and continuing up to today's Alicia Keys. In most of the film, Hall narrates his own story, but a long list of rockers bear witness to what Bono calls the magic of the Muscle Shoals sound. Keith Richards, 
Mick Jagger, Clarence Carter, Stevie Winwood, Greg Allman, and others. The movie was released on Comcast the same day as in the theaters. I watched it twice, once in the theaters and once at home on Comcast. Once again, Muscle Shoals from the year 2013. For poetry this week, we've published a poem by Scott Cairns, one of his several idiot psalms. In fact, Scott Cairns has a book of idiot psalms that are due out in 2014. This one is called Idiot Psalm 10, with the subtitle, A Psalm of Isaac, Hoarsely Sung. And yet again the wicked in his arrogance, in his acutely hemmed and tapered sense of self, has found sufficient opportunity to hound the lowly. And yet again, great enabler, the lowly, draped in their accustomed modesty and threadbare suits bereft, have seized the chance to suffer quietly, stage left. Therefore, now again, I puzzle why, O holy silence, why do you appear to bide unheeding some great distance hence? Why, O blithely unapparent, do you remain serenely imperceptible, even to our thinning crew who stand here blinking at the sky? I have no stomach for the newspapers, no heart for the brilliant, flat-screen-lit catalog of woes. Though every item flickers, one admits, wondrously produced and duly sponsored. See here. The wicked boasts about his late successes. The grasping man complains that he is cheated of his share. While all the while the self-concern continue banking largely on your accustomed reticence, and must needs let out their trousers still several measures more, having wagered well. Pinched beneath their spinning machinations and all their neat machines, we grind our teeth, yea, even as we sleep. Idiot Psalm 10 by Scott Cairns Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February the 9th, 2014. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.